the news from the slightly falling apart co-working space where I record is that we had a leak but it didn't get my computer or my microphone and the guy who worked next to me who was making a whole bunch of artwork using a hairdryer not constantly but just at like maybe three to five minute intervals for most of the day has moved out best of luck to him <laughs> I just don't miss him at all <laughs> it was driving me completely mental today's interview is a conversation with Alison Flett who I spoke to when I was down in Adelaide this is probably going to turn into a bit of a, a two-parter with Alison this week and another Adelaide poet next week I decided to talk to Alison purely based on my reaction to one poem of hers it's a poem called insect which was published in cordite and it moved me so much that I just thought, I'll just go chat to her. I, I love that. I'm just going to go see what she has to say. Alison is originally from Scotland and she moved to Adelaide a couple of years ago. So we talk not only about her new book, Where We Are, which came out from Cordite Books, but also about that process of leaving an established poetry community where everybody knows you and where you're embedded and you have things to do and publication opportunities, reading opportunities, and re-establishing all that on the other side of the world, which I think is not an insignificant process. Poetry is weirdly local, as I say to Alison, and it, it does matter who the poets are who live around you and who you end up working with. Alison writes poetry, she also writes memoir, and she works with Jill Jones to put together this series called Little Windows, which is a, a chapbook series just out of Adelaide, which it sort of sounds like might be on pause for now. And we talk a bit about that too, what it is to kind of have a project that you're very passionate about, but that just has to go on ice for a little while. It's worth mentioning too, that about halfway through, Alison shares something with us about her health, which I was really surprised by. Um, and really, this might sound strange, but really grateful to her for being willing to share it with us. I really do hope she's doing well. I hope you all enjoy listening to this. I'll be back at the end with some more extended shout outs because people in the Poetry Says community have been very busy the last couple of weeks. Very exciting. But just before I go, I just want to put in a little plug for this bookshop I found when I was down in Adelaide called Goodwood Books. It specializes entirely in 20th century women writers and it is one of the most fantastic bookshops I have ever been to anywhere in the world. It's just a mecca, it's wonderful. And if you can't go in person, I've just realized having a little look around their website that you can browse and buy stuff online. So I'm gonna to link to them. I, I very much hope that this little plug gets a few more sales happening and that you're still there when I go back to Adelaide. So as I say, I'll be back at the end. Until then, here's Alison Flett. I was thinking, reading this preface and reading the book about the fact that poetry is so weirdly local. Mm. It actually does matter who you know in your immediate geographical vicinity yeah 
and that does have like a concrete effect on your publication opportunities, your reading opportunities. Absolutely. Um, and so I just would love to hear about what it was like to rebuild all that in Adelaide. Mm. Um, and maybe, maybe to lead in, I'll actually get you to read this poem, which is called Adelaide, I Dream You. Okay. Adelaide, I Dream You. Adelaide, I dream you, your cream rollers breaking apart on your jetties, the raked clean beaches, sand-tongued white by the southern ocean, beachgoers drinking their flats and lattes, black coffee covered with steamed white froth. Adelaide, I dream your hot December, your sweaty Christmas parade, Adelaide, your giant plastic Santa and your blow-up snowmen. Is the blinding sun like the snow, Adelaide? Do you want to make it so? your crinoline-frilled history, your spinning parasol past, with corseted women in Miss Gladys' Simtune shoes, photochrome postcards of open streets, the dirt beaten flat over what lies beneath. What are you trying to hide, Adelaide, in the neatness of your chart? All laid out in a grid, Adelaide, Hindley Street intersecting your heart, the mango sweet of Empire Shisha, the neon outlines of women's bodies, Crazy horse strippers with synthetic wigs, gopped at by suit boys and men with paunches, the punch and shrill of gold-filled pokies, pavement stained with puke. Your blood dreams burl inside me, Adelaide. Do our outsides reflect our insides, or is it the other way round? My face is starting to change, Adelaide. I think I might be you. Your hidden pain, your homesick past, the slap, slap, slap of those northern suburbs, white salt pans and scrubland paddocks, factories and flat-packed land. Your long straight highways stamped with billboard warnings, littered with crow-picked roadkill, glistered with cellophaned grief. I don't care if I belong, Adelaide. I don't care if you belong. What does it mean to belong, Adelaide? Do you remember how this began? You act like it's all yours, Adelaide, as if you've always been here, fussing with dusty petticoats, polishing curlicued balconies. Is forgetting the only solution? The old me has faded, Adelaide, making me afraid. I think we can fix this. I do, Adelaide, but we've still got a lot to learn. Thank you. Yeah, reading that, and this is my first time this weekend spending a proper bit of time here. I think mm. the last time I was here, probably I was 15 years old. All right. Um, that line... You act like it's all yours, Adelaide. There is something funny about this place and like the sandstone and the the grid. Mm. It's got that very early colonial vibe, but then also there's something different because it is like a, it's it's Australia's only free settlement. Yeah. Um, whatever that means. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, there's there is a there's an interesting attitude that I've only just sort of started to kind of notice and I wouldn't have a clue how to articulate but what was it what was it like to start to make inroads into poetry here was it welcoming from the get-go the poetry scene I I found very welcoming to be honest Um, I started off uh, going to Friendly Street where I met a lot of people that I'm still friendly with now Friendly Street Poets being a, a monthly reading uh, yes, it is monthly. It's so long since I've been there. I think it's monthly. Yes, like that. I'm pretty sure it is. A regular poetry yes. reading, yeah. Yes. Um, and 
I, yeah, so I would either meet people who were going along as well or meet people through, you know, events that the organisation put on. And, um, yeah, formed a lot of really strong friendships and then through those friendships met other people. And um, I think that's probably how I met Jill Jones, sort of in a, in a um, roundabout way. Not that she went to Friendly Street, but she was invited to read it. They used to put on an event called words at the wall in the library and when Jill and Annette first arrived here um, Jill went along to to do a reading at words at the wall and I went along to see her and uh, and I think that was probably when I first met her and then we got more friendly through going to Lee Marvin readings that Ken Bolton used to do in the Dark Horsey and again that was a place that I found very welcoming and um, made a lot more friends at Dark Horsey that again I'm still I'm still friendly with and so that side of things I found fairly easy in lots of ways I mean it was I guess like starting from the beginning again mm. um, you know I'd, I'd lost all my poetry contacts in Scotland um, and nobody you know knew who I was or what sort of Thing that I did so it was it was like sort of starting again and trying to get published is always a bit harder if you don't have any kind of name or contacts or anything like that so um, so that took a while to to sort of break into that side of things as well and um, but yeah in general it was it was a good experience for me I would say. Mm. Did you feel a bit like you had permission to try different things, given that when you got here, nobody knew your name yeah. or what kind of poetry you wrote? I mean, mm. you could have started writing completely different style if you had wanted to. Well, I kind of had to, because when I was writing in Scotland, a lot of the time I was writing in Scots. So I couldn't, you know, it was not really a poetry for the Australian market. There so, is a, uh, an absolutely stunning poem in here, though, written... I don't know. I don't know if this. It's part of a longer poem called Semiosphere. Oh yes, it's uh, called Luminoid. Luminoid. Do you want to just read a couple of lines from it? Sure. It is. Does this count as Scots, or is that? It's yeah, like, yeah. yeah okay. I mean, it's it's phonetic Scots. It's not right. like um, Scots. There's a lot of arguments about the way that Scots words are spelt because, um, of course. It's completely different in different regions, and mm. there's they have different regions have different words and different ways because it's, I guess, was an oral language for a long time, before it was a, as with most languages, um. But yeah, the the written tradition is sort of relatively new, and a lot of the the different areas in Scotland have established their own ways of writing and spelling things. So, there is now like a standardised Scots dictionary, but um. The, like grammar and stuff varies from region to region as well so it would be very difficult I think to have a standard Scots language That's you know amazing. the Scots, the no Scots dictionary has all the words in it so well not all of them obviously there's some that have been missed out but they have words from like lots of different regions and they tell you which region it's from but mm. um, yeah there's uh, usually there's variations of spelling sort of beside the, the word as well this is Luminoid. Uh, how far do you want me to go with this? Oh, third of the way? Okay. Wherever feels like a natural breaking off point, I suppose, if there is one. There was a bunch of us. There was Davy, who was a lot older, and some kind of accountant. 
and Shadden and Stacy the pole dancers, and Forbes who was rich and went to the posh school, and all the rest of us who had left the club and were headed for the party, and we were dotering down Dundas Street, which is on a hill in what's cried the new town in Edinburgh, though it looked off the old to us with its Georgian houses and their dead straight lines, the long row of them all the way down the hill, and the dark windies staring at us from either side, and us a towsy bunch in the middle of the street, with the music of the club still dunting in our blood, and the thought of the party pumping in our veins, and the freedom of walking in the middle of the road, because it was early morning and there wasn't any traffic yet. Right, thank you. And this speaker ends up having an encounter with a fox, which becomes somewhat mystical mm. towards the end of the yes. poem. Uh, the fox also being on the front cover of the book. Mm. Um, yeah, right. That's That really surprises me to hear that there is even different grammar mm. um, place to place in mm, Scotland. I want to come back to this theme of the poetry community and how it's built and how it's sustained, because that's the just a personal fascination for me. And I know that for a long time you worked with Jill Jones on the Little Windows Project. Mm. What was the most satisfying moment with that project? Because it seems like you, you put out quite a number of really beautiful mm. books and a lot, of, a lot of great people sort of came through that imprint. Yeah, that, that would be really hard to say, I think, because there were, there were highlights every time. I suppose in some ways... The last launch that we did, we did at No Wave, which is another great poetry event that is sort of hanging on by its fingernails at the moment, but um, it was run by Dominic Sines, who now lives in Melbourne. Yes. So he was he was yeah. running it from a distance for a while. And, um, and you know, it still, it, it was never quite the same after Don left, but it was, uh, but it was still, you know, a, a healthy event that there was a decent crowd would turn up for every month. And, um, and we did it as a Christmas event. So it was kind of like the No Wave Christmas party and simultaneously a Little Windows book launch. And it just worked so well. There was like about 80 people there and just such a great crowd, everybody, you know, in high spirits because of it being a Christmas party as well. And we had food and drink and everything, which we used to do for the launches as well. But it was just different having that um, that extra lot of people, I suppose, there. Was, mm -hmm. It was a really good vibe. So, yeah, I mean, all, all of the launches have been good. You know, it's it's always been great having that mix of poets and being able to... I think make that connection it was one of the things that I really enjoyed about doing it was the fact that I could go back to people that I knew in Scotland and say look this is what I'm doing here and would you mind giving us some work for for this and and was able to get some you know pretty really good well-known poets um, to contribute their work so it was nice just being back in touch with them again and you know working with them to um, get the book looking right and everything like that mm. so yeah and then also like meeting lots of new Australian poets that um, uh, Jill was largely responsible for choosing the Australian poets because she just has better contacts than me here and um, but then I would again be working with them to to get the book looking right and so that was a another opportunity to get to know people on a different level and get to know their poetry on a different level as well because it's obviously 
much more intense when you're reading a thing for um, editing purposes and um, layout purposes and all of that, then you really get to know a person's work. So, mm -hmm. yeah. This might sound like kind of an obvious question, but why do something like that? Like there is so, there's so much unpaid labor, mm. it's like completely unpaid, right? You wouldn't, yeah. you'd be losing money if anything. Yeah, yeah. Why do, why take on a project like that? I guess because, uh, it, I mean, it started off because Jill and I were, were chatting and we both had um, poetry books on our laptops that were well, chat books that we'd kind of put together and then never really done anything with. We were talking about that and, you know, who does chat books in Australia anymore anyway? And, you know, there's competitions for them, but is anybody like publishing them otherwise? And then we just kind of decided that it would be fun, a sort of fun thing to do. And we spoke about people we knew that could, that we could, um, we could talk about. And I think something that Jill and I often spoke about was the fact that Adelaide tends to get overlooked in the poetry scene, that um, it's very much about poets from Melbourne and Sydney and um, that, you know, Adelaide, Tasmania, Queensland, there's not, so, I mean, Queensland more so, but yeah, it seemed like um, it was harder for Adelaide poets to get published maybe because most of the publishing, most of the journals were coming out of uh, Sydney and Melbourne and obviously you know it's natural that when you're um, if you live in Melbourne and you know lots of poets in Melbourne then obviously they're your kind of go-to for publishing work and uh, it's just that bit harder to break into it if, you, if you're from outside of that circle. So we were talking about maybe using it to um, introduce um, lesser-known Adelaide poets to the poetry scene and that being published alongside some better-known poets from other places in Australia and from Scotland um, would would help, I suppose, with... Um, oh, just be, I mean, in a very small way, obviously, but, you know, would be something, some way of contributing to that um, imbalance mm. in the poetry scene here. And, um, and also a way of... I guess me introducing Scottish poets to Adelaide and um, introducing Australian poets to Scotland mm. as well. So. I appreciate that it's sort of an unanswerable question, mm. like why? But I want to bring it up because I think that there is, what's the best way to put this? Like, I'm tempted to say a duty to contribute but that sounds very heavy. <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly didn't feel it as that. Mm. I just thought it would be really good fun. Right, okay. And it was really good fun. Yeah, yeah. But at the uh, same time... It was a lot of hard work as well. Well, this is the thing. It's, it's, it's work. Mm. And, and that's sort of what Australian poetry runs on. Mm. Um, yes, those connections that you're talking about, those hyper-local connections, but also generosity... Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and time mm. as a gift. Mm. Um, when we spoke on the phone, you talked about that project and also your work for transnational literature mm. and how they were sort of in a bit of a state of pause at the moment. 
Yeah. And I was wondering if you thought anything about how how do you know when it's time to actually say, you know what, this project is actually probably finished mm. and it's time to move away from it now? Yeah, yeah it's, it's difficult with Little Windows because it didn't end, you know, because it was for any reason other than the fact that both Jill and I were very busy with other projects, that it just became impossible to take time out to, to do that because... I think particularly around the, the launch and the organising of the launch and everything like that was was a lot of intense work that had a kind of that you had to be committed to for that time frame. The the other work you could um, kind of spin out over the year. But so so it felt like it we weren't really done with it, you know, we could have kept going quite easily if it hadn't been for the time constraints on both of us and um, yeah so I think we've never we've never actually said that's it for Little Windows that's it done and somewhere I, I do kind of I do like the idea of picking it back up and doing it again and I don't think that would be too hard to do except for I think when you've got the momentum going and you're sort of committed to doing these things once a year then it's easier than once you stop the thought of going back with the knowledge of how much work it takes. And because we were doing everything by hand as well, we weren't um, sending stuff off to printers. It was all, you know, kind of old-fashioned cutting paper with old-fashioned guillotines and using book presses and um, just doing it on a, like a home printer, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was... It was really labour-intensive. Um, so, yeah, the idea of going back to that, because obviously, you know, you stop doing that and then your time fills up with all these other things that you're doing. And mm. my health hasn't been that great either. So I have to, you know, it's difficult for me to necessarily be able to commit to something in six months' time or something like that because I don't know how my, my health will be at that point. So, yeah. Sometimes those pauses just become the sort of the natural end. Yes. I know that's been true for me as well. Mm. You also said on the phone that you're working on a, a new memoir, but that poems keep coming in instead mm. of memoir. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, maybe it's the subject matter that kind of lends itself to poems in some way, makes... It's easier to so it's you know it's it's kind of about um, well it's about life and death and how to cope with both but um, I had was recently diagnosed with stage four cancer and um, that obviously brought me very close to an awareness of my own mortality and I'm currently on medication that's um, going to keep me alive for a bit longer than. I initially thought um, but sometimes I think you know you can write about this is this is what happened to me mm. but sometimes it's easier to write about it in a, a poetry through poetry than it is because some things are just or some of the insights that you get I think when you're in that place as well sort of lend themselves to poetic expression um, 
just because it's almost like ordinary language doesn't seem enough. Mm, mm, or sometimes, mm. sometimes you do want to write about it in a very ordinary way, so you're, you do it through metaphor or something. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's just because I think when you're when you're that close to death that everything becomes a metaphor. You look at everything in a completely different way. Right. So you're constantly going, oh yeah, maybe I could write a poem about that. And, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of directions I could. I kind of want to go in at once. Mm-hmm. One is to bring up the book The Undying by Anne Boyer, which I think I might have mentioned to you on the phone, mm. but um, that is sort of an interesting one in that it sort of sits a little bit with, between poetry and mm. memoir. It's about her own experience um, with stage four breast cancer, um, metastatic breast cancer. The, the other thing, though, is that uh, in my own professional like day job, I work at a cancer research hospital and I mm. worked at a a children's cancer charity for a long time and part of that was into part of that work involved interviewing people young people who had cancer and mm. then um, families of young people who had cancer and one of the things I was m- so aware of doing that work was that there are these pat phrases that people who are going through that experience end up getting slammed with over and over again I mean mm. Canteen's got a campaign out about it now don't tell me to be strong yeah what are the what are the things that have you had any experience with that at, so far, people sort of handing you these these things that they feel they're meant to say? Um, not too much, I don't think. I mean, it's difficult because, because it's a difficult thing to talk about for other people to talk about. And I know, I mean, certainly to begin with, I knew that I had to... There was only certain people that I could tell to begin with because I just didn't want... I wanted to be completely at ease with the whole thing myself mm. before I discussed it with everybody or made it public knowledge. Um, and, you know, people deal with these things in different ways, but that was definitely how I felt I needed to deal with it. And I didn't want any drama around it. I didn't want people going, Oh my God, that's awful, I'm so sorry. And well, you then know, you're managing their feelings. Yes, mm. and but then also, obviously, that's what people are going to say. That's what they're going to feel about it. And, mm. you know, it's not that I would have been annoyed about that kind of response, just that I didn't want to have to deal with it. Mm. Um, I wanted to be in a... Uh, to, to sort of be able to talk about it in a matter-of-fact way and come to terms with it in that, in that sort of way as well. Um so yeah, maybe there was, or <laughs> sometimes I suppose people would always have a story of a friend of theirs who had cancer. Right, and then well. they tried this one thing and then, yes. yeah. And mm-hmm. Either they tried this one thing and it was really, it was really great or, and then they died horribly because of it, which was absolutely not what I was wanting to hear, um, certainly not in the early stages. Um, so... Yeah, uh, I was maybe because I was careful around who I told to begin with. Uh, mm. I didn't feel that I had to deal with too much of of that kind of thing. Not in a way that that bothered me anyway. Mm. Um, mm. But you feel differently now. You feel okay 
with a microphone clipped onto you talking about it. Yes, right. and I think that uh, it has. it's taken me a while to get to this place because for a long time, even though everybody in my you know, immediate circle knew about it, I was very conscious that I didn't, and still am, I suppose, to a certain extent, that I didn't want to be that poet who has cancer. So it's okay if, you know, if it's people that, um, people that you know, because they know you as a person and they interact with you as a person and that's who you are and you also happen to have cancer. But if you're like out in the, in the public world as, um, yeah, people don't know you, people haven't met you, they've only sort of seen information about you online and, mm-hmm. and you're the poet with cancer, then I wasn't sure that I wanted to be that person, but. Whereas now I sort of accept it as, well, it does have um, a big part to play in my life and there's no point trying to hide it, really. Mm-hmm. And and it's what I'm writing about at the moment and it's what a lot of my poetry is about. So, not that it would be clearly stated in the poems, but, um, yeah, seems like the right time just to be open and... Mm honest about yeah well i i really appreciate you sharing it with me you're welcome um i'm just wondering if there are any any poems you've gone back to with that different with that experience that that has changed your view of those poems like Mm, that's interesting because I'm sure there are, but I cannot think off the top of my head. Yeah, I'll put you on the spot with that question. I do know that I read at one point, I was lying on the beach and I had a copy of Ireland with me and there was a Judith Beveridge poem in it, which sadly I cannot remember the title of. And she was talking about her experience of her partner dying, or, but being in the, in the sort of later stages. And... It really, I felt like it really moved me in a way that I wouldn't have previously been moved by it. And it also was something that I felt really helped me a lot, made me feel somehow less alone. Mm. Even though she wasn't talking about it from a first person perspective, it, it just kind of, I don't know, hit me in a way that obviously you know there are like millions of people going through this every day or or going through you know life and death situations every day Mm. and um but in some ways it really helped me to sort of think i'm no different to anybody else just because i'm going through this everybody goes through this everybody has to go through it at some point Mm. and something about the way that she expressed that and her experience of it from the outside just made me feel very surrounded I suppose by people who know what this is like on on various different levels and from various different perspectives Mm. Um, most people I would say by the time I mean I've been so fortunate and and never lost anybody that was really really close to me I've lost some some good friends but not people that um, left an enormous hole in my life because you know maybe I saw them every week or anything like that but um yeah, uh, and my, both my parents are still alive, but I think generally most people my age have been through a big grief. Mm. Um, and and this has been my big grief. And um, 
yeah I, I'm I'm no different in that way and that's and that's a comfort mm. I sometimes feel tempted to make proclamations like that is the function of poetry is to make mm. us feel less alone and then I think oh but you know look, there's a million other things it could do that's right. but um but that is something that it does particularly well I think and I'll I will look up that Judith Beveridge poem and maybe pass this along to her if you if you're comfortable with that absolutely um and I did I did have that experience multiple times looking at this book and one of the poems well okay so there's a couple of things here. There's a poem towards the end of the collection called, in this collection it's called Connect Connections, but I hmm. think it might have been published under a different title in Cordite, maybe called Insect. Yes, I think it was. And then it, yeah, and then it changed. Can't remember why, but maybe Kent didn't like the title or maybe <laughs> I'd changed it myself because yeah. I think Connections is a better title. It's just, it's one of those poems that um, it's a bit too long to get you to read the whole thing. Um, and I haven't prepped you for it at all, but it really, really gets me. I read it again last night over dinner and I was just like, oh God, <laughs> someone's going to notice that I'm tearing up here. But um, this makes me feel less alone because it's a part of what it's about is um, this strange and sort of silly feeling that humans have when they see an insect struggling mm. particularly if they're the ones who've hurt the insect you know yeah like I can't stand that even yeah. though I yeah. just I know how silly it is um and it's all about yourself and your your projection yes. um so I, I did want to bring that one up too but I I did also want to get you to read um the poem wrong season christmas so one of the things I've noticed reading collections that have come out over the last sort of two years is that many, many poets have, of course, written and have needed to write a bushfire poem. Mm. Um, some people have written many bushfire poems and put them together, and there are just so many different ways to talk about, you know, the, the summer of 2019, 20, mm. and it's even sort of hard to bring it up. But, but this poem also was I, I found it quite comforting and I might get you yeah. to read it it wasn't written it's actually a really old poem right it's not even that bushfire season yeah, yeah so no. there you go <laughs> it was uh, not long after I came here I don't think and my friend Rachel Mead who I was mentioned earlier um, she lives in uh, bushfire country and she would describe, you know, the every time it was bushfire season, the um, just the anxiety that she went through, thinking, you know, is it, it is that is that smoke I can smell in the air? It would be like an almost constant background worry, and that just coming from Scotland, where at that I mean there have been a few fires in Scotland recently, and nothing like there is here obviously but I'd never heard of anything well never obviously I'd heard of Australian bushfires but never realised the full impact of them mm. beforehand and it was through speaking to Rachel that this poem came about Wrong Season Christmas Almost a fortnight over 40 bushfires celebrate in neighbouring valleys nerve ends prinkle like tinsel looped along trembling branches of bone the Magi are travelling towards us, their arms full of dreadful gifts, the smell of burning gum, 
glistering embers of gold, the giant fires that burl inside. All that wrapped stuff in the corner turns quietly invisible. We hunker by a window, our bodies transparent and lighter than life. Thanks. It's that third stanza that gets me with this one. The Magi are travelling towards us, their arms full of dreadful gifts. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, I've just pronounced it. <laughs> oh, no, look, I'm almost certainly wrong. Like, don't worry. No, I would say it's me. <laughs> it's one of those words that I've, I've seen written a lot mm. and very rarely hear <laughs> spoken. So that's probably... Too. No, I'm always wrong. Um, something about the way you put that is, to me, it's sort of how it feels. I mean, I, we're in Melbourne during that that particular bushfire mm. season and there were a couple of exceptionally scary days but because you're in the city you kind of know that like I mean it got very very bad with the smoke like yeah. just terrifyingly bad but it, mm. we were never actually in any danger of losing our house mm. but um, in the summer of 2003 there were fires in Canberra um, and I remember we we went into the cinema and we came out and my phone had like this is, you know, very early. Nokia 3315 was like full of messages from my mom. The sky was black. Wow. And and there's this, the feeling of the fire is traveling towards you. It's coming. Like mm. It's just going to keep coming. Yes. Uh, full of dreadful gifts. Yes. Just there's perfect. nothing you can do about it. Not really. No, I mean, you can get on the roof with a hose, but mm. there's a certain point. And, and that power that it has that is almost supernatural yes yeah as a last question i guess because i've spent uh a whole 48 hours here now (laughs) (laughs) i'm sort of thinking i have this feeling that like there's definitely i mean i've met i met ken yesterday i've met you today i know that jill jones is here i'll hopefully see aiden coleman later this afternoon Mm. um I have a wonderful listener um, by the name of Leela who works at a, a bookshop here. I, I can feel there's this community around me, yeah. but I know that I would need to stay a lot, lot longer than a weekend to get, get my hands around it. What is, from, from your point of view, from where you're sitting, what's the shape of the Adelaide poetry community right now? Hmm. I think that it, people here, I think at the moment people are feeling a little bit lost with the sort of, slight demise of no wave there was another um poetry reading um that was on in halifax street and used to just get called the halifax street readings but mm-hmm. um it, it, had, it did have an official name as well mm. and um no wave obviously had a big impact like yes it was it yeah. was it was huge they miss and you dominic yeah why'd you leave i know oh yeah come back <laughs> come back <laughs> um yeah, and I think that No Wave stepped into the dark horsey shoes quite nicely. It was a different, it was a different crowd. It was partly a different crowd, because um, uh, Dom obviously had a lot of student contact, um, so there was a big, a big student crowd, which was nice, you know, to have that, um, you know, people. Although, I mean, a lot of them would have come along to Dark Horsey as well, and a lot of the Dark Horsey crowd came along to No Wave. So it was a, it was a really good mix of people and a really um, always always just a really fun night. Mm. Is Dark Horsey <clears throat> the name of the venue? Dark Horsey was the bookshop that Ken ran that 
the, uh, uh, so that was the venue. That was the that venue, was the venue. For it. and then the readings. But it was inside the the, yeah. the art gallery, and then the readings were called the Lee Marvin readings. Yeah, it's just such a hilarious and cute name. Yes, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's there are some there are a number of readings still, which mm. is, I mean, Adelaide is, as I was saying before, I did this episode about the Canberra scene and talking about the readings that are on there. It's a smaller population than Adelaide by about a hundred thousand people. But so it seems impressive to me that there are at least sounds like three or four mm. regular readings. Great bookshops. I went to Goodwood Books yesterday. Oh, that's great. Oh my god. That was Alison Flett. Really hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks again to Alison for making time to have me round. Really hope you're doing well. I have a bunch of follow-up and shout-outs here. As I say, everyone in the Poetry Says Extended Universe is doing so much cool stuff, and I just want to let you know about what's going on. First thing to mention is that Adam Ford's Anticlinal Fold tour that he runs in Castle, Maine, has gone digital. This is a project that started as a show and has now become a recorded spoken word walking tour. And it's centered on this thing called the Anticlinal Fold, which Adam describes as an idiosyncratic and locally celebrated geological formation in the central Victorian town of Castle, Maine on the unceded lands of the Jajawarong Nation. So Adams worked with a historian and a Jajawarong elder, Uncle Rick, and a sound and video artist to put this thing together. So what you can do is, next time you're in Castlemaine, which, I mean, I feel like half the Australian poetry community is in Castlemaine. So you're probably going out there at some point to, to see someone. You can stop, you can plug in, and you can do this walking tour to just find out more about this weird rock formation and then also the geological and the indigenous history of the area. We mentioned Dom Symes in that conversation. I did want to mention that Dom is going to be reading at La Mama in July, July 11th. Dom's going to be reading alongside Eva Collins, Juan Garrido Salgado, and my dear friend Lesh Karen, who I believe is making her La Mama debut. I've already got my ticket. It's 8 p.m. Tuesday, July 11th. La Mama is, there's all different kinds of poetry readings that happen across Melbourne, but La Mama is the one that you go to if you want like just an exceptionally great um, theatrical experience. The new La Mama is gorgeous. And so this is a reading where you get a black box theater. You get tiered seating, you get lights, (laughs) all the stuff that I think all poetry readings should have access to if they want them. And hopefully, yeah, I'll go up and and say hi to Dom and tell him that Adelaide really misses him. And he'll probably say, I don't want to hear that. I just left. But yeah, if you're a Poetry Says listener and you are heading along, do come and say hi. Don't be fooled by me pretending to look at my phone. I'm not looking at anything. I'm just nervous. Uh, Next thing to mention, you know how I've been bitching about this thing about there's not enough small journals? Well, 
The Suburban Review is addressing this problem directly. They've got this program called Jumpstart a Journal, which runs throughout most of July. It's an online program which teaches you how to make, how to edit and bring together your own journal. It does cost some money. It's 175 bucks full price, but there are some lower priced options and there are 10 fully funded places for First Nations and remote participants. Usually I wouldn't do this kind of shout out because I know it sounds like I'm doing an ad or something, but I very much trust the source here. Anupama Pilbrow got in touch with this and she said, trust me, this is good quality stuff. So I thought, okay, I, I really, since I've been bitching about this for a number of weeks now, I really should mention that, yeah, other people have noticed it too and they are actually doing something about it, unlike me. Lastly, lastly, I want to say that it has finally happened. I got an email uh, about a week ago from a guy called David Motamed, who's based in Hobart. And David says, tonight I am kicking off a weekly poetry show on Hobart Community Radio, partly inspired by Poetry Says. It's called Ratbag Poetics. It's at 8 p.m., on Wednesdays. Uh, I will link to it. And you know, David, essentially, this is my worst fear that somebody younger and cooler than me is going to come along and make a show in Australian poetry. I am now officially Ozpo's Yardley, Lily of the Valley wearing, beanie knitting, tea and biscuits making aunt. And the next gen is here. <laughs> Uh, I listened to the first show. It was reading and discussing Ursula Robinson Shaw's incredible digital chapbook, Yearn Mally. Could you pick a better book for a show that's called Ratbag Poetics? I don't think so. Also, Ratbag Poetics is such a good name for a show. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of feelings about this. I'm really excited to see where David takes this. My favorite part of the show was when he summed up the Earn Mally saga by saying, modernism was going off like a frog in a sock and not everyone was happy about it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think there's more that you need to say about that. Yeah, 8 p.m. Wednesday nights. The other thing I thought while I was listening to it, because I've just recorded this intro outro here and I'm going to sit here for another 45 minutes and chop out a bunch of bullshit. Um, David just sits there and talks and he doesn't say um and he just talks about poetry straight off the top of his head. I don't know. I don't know how he's how he does that. Um, well done, David. I'm off to reapply my Yardley's Lily of the Valley. <laughs>